You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with composer Max Richter. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Well, I mean, for me, the creative process is, is a sort of a continuous thing in the sense that I'm writing kind of all the time at some level. And that doesn't mean I'm sitting at my desk all the time, but it does mean that I've got a continuous thought process, a continuous engagement with the material I'm trying to shape. And it's many different kinds of processes. First of all, obviously, an intention. You need to have an intention. What is it I'm trying to do? But then you get a process of making things, and then you get into a process of dialogue with the things you've made, where they start to take on properties, and it feels like the material has intentions of its own. So then you're trying to, it's like herding cats, you know, sort of corralling this material into some kind of structure, some kind of formed object. It's, then it becomes like a sculptural process on the large scale. But at the small scale, of course, there's still a sort of quite technical situation happening to do with how the notes are sort of woven together to give rise to larger structures. So there's all of those kinds of processes. And then there's also a lot of patience and listening involved. You know, so I've made something. What is it really? You know, leave it aside for a week, a month, a year, and try to see it for the first time. So it's a sort of, it's a little like composting, you know, in the garden when you've got stuff and you just put it all on the heap, you know. And then later on, let's see what's in that heap. But time is a super important part of that process. You know, there are things which, which, are just not ready and you have to just wait until they make sense to you in a new way or you can discover them almost as though someone else had written them that sort of you know trying to achieve a kind of objectivity about the material you know so much of it is about trying to get to a situation where you can sort of uncover the work which is it's it is sort of out there and it's about sort of having enough patience, peace of mind, concentration, opportunity to, yes, to kind of let it come into the foreground somehow, you know? I like there's, there's I think Picasso says that the way, I hope that when inspiration strikes, it finds me sitting in the chair, you know? So it, you do have to be in the chair in order for that process to happen or in some way in the chair, you know? Maybe not literally, but... You need to be sort of ready. <laughs> well, I guess light, daylight, luminosity, these are sort of very powerful images for me. And I think they are, they're universals. You know, the experience of sunlight, daylight has all kinds of poetic associations, I guess. It's about fundamentals. It's about beginnings. You know, the idea of dawn, the idea of daylight. These are very sort of deep images within human culture. I remember years ago reading Jung, where he formulates this word numinous, something which has a kind of extra sort of almost transcendent sort of luminosity about it. And he associates various images, ideas, archetypes with this quality, something which kind of points beyond itself, points to kind of bigger things. And I guess daylight, the experience of light, the experience of sunlight is like that for me. 
I sort of only do cinema and film and uh, TV projects which really matter to me, where I think it's important there's something being said here which I want to support. So mostly I would start with just making some sketches from the script. Of course, it's, uh, it's a journey and it's a fundamentally collaborative journey. So, you know, once the images start to happen, then there's a whole dialogue process with the rest of the creative team about how music can best inhabit, support, serve the rest of the material. And it's really a series of experiments. It's to do with, you know, keeping a very open mind, trying things, seeing what happens. It's an exciting kind of collaborative laboratory experiment, I think, working on film. It's, yeah, it's a, I enjoy it, the sort of puzzle solving, the questioning. It's good fun. Well, Memory House was a, a project which I'd, had been sort of cooking for quite a long time. And in a way, it was an experimental piece to see if the kinds of things I wanted to do musically could be used to tell stories, to communicate. In a way, it was a sort of will it fly question, you know? <laughs> Is this actually a thing? And the, the impetus for it really was to do with the fact that classical music culture at the time was very much tied to a kind of modernist orthodoxy, which is a kind of post-Boulez mindset where a piece of music was in a sense an intellectual manifesto rather than a sensory experience. You know, it was atonal, it was super complex. That was what orthodox classical music culture was. I didn't want to do that because I felt that music was a way of talking. And if I want to talk to people, then I need to use the language that they can understand. So that meant that I really was, if you like, exiled from mainstream classical music culture, which meant I couldn't get played or recorded. So I had to do this myself if I wanted anyone to hear what I was doing. And that's what Memory House was really about. It was about finding a way to be heard without having to resort to this kind of super complex eternal music. Memory House itself, I felt was creatively, it kind of did what I intended it to do. I felt like on a personal creative level, I felt encouraged that this idea about music would actually work. On a commercial level, it was a total failure. <laughs> and really, the only people who really got to know about it were other composers. We didn't have the opportunity to perform it for about 10 years. So, you know, it was just a kind of non-event in, in terms of the public, general public, or even listening public. Really, the only other people who heard it were other composers, <laughs> other artists, you know, musicians interested in experimental things. So with that, if you like, inverted commas, failure, I thought to myself, well, well, this means sort of no one's listening, which means I can just continue doing exactly what I want because no one cares. So there's no, as it were, risk. <laughs> there's no risk of failure because I've already failed. <laughs> so then I just carried on. You know, I, I wrote the Blue Notebooks. Memory House had a sort of a focus on the sort of big historical moments of the 20th century. The Blue Notebooks focused, or rather, I guess the jumping off point for the Blue Notebooks was the scenarios around the Iraq conflict. I mean, I think Yulia is really important in, in kind of everything I do because, you know, we have collaborated explicitly on, on some projects, for example, on Voices, you know, that's very much the outcome of a million conversations we had, and she's made some 
beautiful visual material for that project. Sleep was a great big long conversation between us. You know, we've sat around in a, over the kitchen table for 20 years having ideas and talking to one another about ideas and creative ideas and approaches to how creativity can sit in the world and what should we do next and, you know, how's her work going and how's my work going? I mean, this is what we do. So if we're talking about sources, then I guess that's really the primary source. And then, of course, we're all, you know, we're all, we're also on our own creative journeys, ex exploring and researching and thinking. And it's true that literature is a big part of what I've, what I'm about in a way. You know, I love stories, both music, literature, visual art. These are all ways to experience how another mind encounters the world. And that for me is really the most, most exciting thing about it, you know. When you're reading a piece of writing by someone or you're seeing a piece of visual art, you're seeing a window into that person's encounter with reality, that person's biography, what things mean to them. And then you can compare notes. You know, you can compare notes with that person. How is it that person sees these things and how do I see these things? And it's a way to understand one another. And I think that's really one of the most important things that creativity does in our world. In a piece like, you know, Voices... This comes out of conversations Yulia and I were having in sort of 2017, 2018, you know, sort of Trump era, I guess, where you just think, hang on, this isn't right. This is, this is all wrong, what's going on here. Okay, so in the way that, you know, somebody who isn't an artist, they would just say that to their friends, they would have a conversation, I don't like what's happening here, this is all wrong. Well, as artists, we also want to have this conversation, we also want to convey our thoughts and feelings about the world we're living in. And it was a very simple in a way, intuitive response to the things we saw happening around us, the things we see in our daily lives. Artists are just, in a way, of course, ordinary people. And it just so happens that instead of having a conversation over coffee with a friend about something, I make a piece of music about it. <laughs> it's the same, same impulse. I guess, really, the common theme is that ultimately this is about conversations. It's conversations about how we tell stories and the kinds of things we want to talk about with Margaret and Wayne. So a fair bit of last year was a new ballet, which was premiered in Toronto, which will go to Covent Garden in 24. So this is based around Margaret's Mad Adam trilogy of novels, which in a sense is a sort of a typical Atwood dystopia, but it is very much centered on environmental questions. Actually, Weirdly enough, it's, there's a pandemic at the center of the story. And of course, the project was delayed by an actual pandemic by two years. But it's a brilliant piece of writing. It's a very rich piece of world building. It's quite substantial novels with a huge cast of characters. And we, yeah, we spent some time figuring out how to present a rendering of this as a live piece of play with live music, which was a sort of a puzzle-solving exercise because... There's so much text and data in the books and so many different kinds of writing that it was quite challenging to figure out how to turn this into something which would be a coherent piece of dramatic storytelling for the stage, some, but very enjoyable. And Wayne, obviously, is a, you know, he's a brilliant collaborator and a very, he's a very sort of multidimensional thinker. And we, you know, we've done a lot of work together over the years and it's always really fun, really, really fun. So that was Mad Adam. It's a piece I'm really... I, I'm sort of very fond of it. No. I had a great time doing it. And I look forward to it sort of coming back to life in 24 in, in Europe. Yes, the 
So the work with Dior has been really fascinating. So this starts out with a shared passion and enthusiasm for, I guess, modernist literature and specifically the writers around Bloomsbury Group and Virginia Woolf, most of all. So some years ago, I made a ballet called Wolf Works, again with Wayne, which is centered around the three novels of Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, Orlando, and The Waves. And Kim, Kim Jones is a sort of lifelong devotee of Virginia Woolf and all things Bloomsbury. So he got very excited about this, and he suggested that we use some of this music for a show of theirs. And I was very happy with that idea because... Having talked to him, you know, it's clear that there was a sort of a shared passion and enthusiasm for this work at a literary level rather than just as a sort of, I mean, he's very profoundly passionate, devoted, you'd really say, to this work. So we did that. And then over the last couple of years, we've sort of gone a bit deeper in a way. Most recently, we made a piece for Paris based around the wasteland in a way in celebration of the the anniversary which was an extraordinarily beautiful sort of exploding of the text which was read as part of this performance where we used some music from infra because the wasteland is actually one of the sources of this other piece of mine called infra so there are many sort of touch points with kim and he's a tremendously creative sort of multi-dimensional person so that's been it's been great fun to do this. Well, the natural world has its own sonic language, its own its own fingerprints. And that's one of the beautiful things actually about being out here. You know, we built this studio out in the woods. And as somebody who's been a city dweller most of my life, the city obviously is a very rich sonic environment. And we're sort of habituated to that. But you know, out here there is another acoustic environment, another sort of sonic fingerprint and always changing. And every day is a sort of a different sound picture. I walk out the door and uh, yeah, you do hear it changing over time. You know, the leaves are coming in now, different kinds of the bird song. The wind sounds different. It's a wonderful thing to be around and to, to experience. So it's a project which really is the outcome of a, in a way, an idealistic vision of how creativity can sort of coexist with the broader community. But it's something that Yulia and I have, you know, we passionately believe in it. We believe in the possibility of work having a, an elevating effect in society more broadly. And in a way, it's a laboratory. You know, we're excited by, you know, other minds, other people with their own ideas, their own thoughts coming in. So it's a space where we can, you know, exchange ideas, we can explore new things. It's, yeah, it's a very multidimensional project, but we're really enjoying it. You know, the idea of connecting with the local school, it's not like everyone has to be a musician, but even if you're not a musician, having the experience of being around music is a positive. It is a gain. It's a thing which just seems to illuminate the rest of life in some way. Again, it goes back to this sort of puzzle of how music works and what it is that we were talking about at the beginning. There's something about being around music or being involved with it in whatever way it is that just seems to lift everything else up. And I think, yeah, if we can offer that to, to sort of local kids, then we should do it. The world is very busy and we do tend to get sort of a bit sidetracked with things which are actually not important. Creativity is a way to 
reconnect with the things that are important. So you're right, you know, the kids, you know, my children, our children, these are, they're facing, yeah, the, probably some of the biggest challenges, you know, we've ever faced in the way they're existential. And I think, you know, the kinds of narratives, the kinds of perspectives that we put into the world with creativity can be a way to sort of elevate the gaze a little bit. You know, just, you know, speaking for myself, you know, somebody who lived 250 years ago, Beethoven makes my life better just every day. It's not huge, but it's a little bit better every day. And I think that's what creativity can do. And, you know, if you multiply that across time and across populations, you can, you know, make a little change. You just have to think of, you know, what's going on now in Iran, you know, with the revolution that's sort of afoot there, you know, various songs have become talismans to sort of elevate the populace, to unite people, to support them. You know, Beethoven 9 playing in Berlin in, you know, 1989 at the fall of the war. These are things which, which just can sort of make a tiny difference. And I think that's what creativity can do. Max Richter's music featured in this episode was On the Nature of Daylight from the Blue Notebooks. Music is courtesy of Max Richter, Universal Music Enterprises, and Mute Song. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.